You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Okay, here we go. Good morning, everybody. Back again for a dose of solidarity during the COVID-19 stay at home. It's been a number of weeks now and the sense of unease is increasing. This is bound to happen as we all get caught in our own little worlds, literally. It is a funny feeling having the world via the internet, but having only distant sounds and the rumbling of empty trams to keep you company. But of course, there is always the cat. Well, everyone has different types of households, but this situation certainly sets the mind thinking outside the usual box. Enough rambling. This is a perfect time to settle in and listen to your favourite community radio station, 3CR. I have a few updates. The first job seeker, no strings attached, 750 or so payment turned up in people's accounts. But the wrangling about who is and who isn't allowed to get their JobKeeper payment. Oh, don't you just love the federal government's natty wordsmithery? JobKeeper payment, a minimum wage payment for some people laid off because of the virus shutdown. That is $1,500 per fortnight will not go to anybody who was working before not it's not going to everyone who who was working before the shutdown not people who um have not been on the books for 12 months that are but given employer employer like most of this federal government's pronouncements or perhaps all government pronouncements there are always a loophole there will be more coverage on uh, of the details of this system of payments over the coming weeks, so um, I'm sure you'll get to hear all about it or you will get to experience it. There are, is some good news that came out of GetUp. Larissa from their First Nations Justice team, uh, they've been running a campaign to stop the business-as-usual sort of attitude for coming from Origin Energy in regards to fracking in the Northern Territory. Now... Origin Energy withdrew late last week, admitting that it could not guarantee their fly-in, fly-out, that's FIFO workers, uh, will not come into contact with at-risk communities and potentially spread the coronavirus. Origin also experienced failure of their fracking well earlier in the year and is facing long delays. So uh, on the same theme, major oil and gas corporation Santos has just announced that they will delay their fracking operation in the Northern Territory at least until 2021. As the only two oil and gas corporations capable of financing, financing the opening up of the Betaloo 
basin gas fields, these long and costly setbacks are seen as a victory for the First Nations people and get up. So that's a bit of good news. Uh, another interesting outcome from the coronavirus on big mining in Western Australia has been the stopping of FIFO as the core of their workforce to going back to employing people who live in the local community. I feel like sticking my fingers up at the community-destroying companies who promoted the model of FIFO as their core um, uh, workforce, uh, excluding local employees, and it's accompanying high suicide rates and marriage breakups over local employment. And uh, you've got to say that, you know, this is actually good news, really. Uh, Gecko, the Gunga Environment Centre, now Gunga is up in the uh, north uh, of uh, the state in uh, East Gippsland. Uh, it reports that the, and they were affected by the big fires, of course, that at the end of March, over the, uh, under the cover of uh, corona, that the Victorian federal governments rolled over or they renewed the Victoria's regional forest agreements, that's the RFAs, for another decade, despite over two-thirds of the reserve system in East Gippsland being burnt in the recent fires, giving the logging industry exemption from federal environment laws for some reason. And the logging has had stopped during the fires, but are set to start again under these new agreements, despite community and scientists calling for the protection of the remaining native forests and, uh, and the animals, etc., that live in those forests. The government has signed off on the contracts which will allow logging to continue in East Gippsland. And you might also have noticed, just as a sidebar in the news, that uh, the Great Barrier Reef, uh, the report on the Great Barrier Reef has shown that it's uh, experienced 60% bleaching, uh, which is, uh, I think, about time we had an end of this good news. Enough of this good news. We're going to uh, talk about an Easter special. Now, um, it is Easter. <laughs> Easter special. Uh, Bernard Kalari's book, Oil Under Troubled Waters, published by Melbourne University Press. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked with Bernard Kalari about his book. Now, he's facing some charges for uh, um, telling people a few things that he learned about uh, the corrupt nature of the uh, behaviour of the Australian government in relation to the East Timorese government when they were uh, dealing with the negotiations over the uh, gas and oil fields in the Timor Sea. But there's more to it, and he has uh, uncovered some quite startling levels of cor corruption. You might want to go back a couple of weeks and listen to the uh, about 38 minutes in on Solidarity Breakfast. You'll hear Bernard Kalari talking about it. Uh, anyway, his book is out and it's being published by Melbourne University Press and they're offering uh, discounts. Uh, the book itself is $39.99, about $40, but uh, they're running uh, discounts to April the 30th and uh, you just need to get in contact with the uh, email, the direct sales department head in at Melbourne University Press to get some discounts. Uh, two copies at 15% off. 10 copies, 20% off, 20 copies, 25% off. I can see a book club frenzy going on. Um, the uh, email is domenica.grinert at unipress.edu.au. That's D-O-M-I-N-I-K-A, Dominica, 
dot G-R-E-I-N-E-R-T Grinert at unimelbourne.edu.au Hi, this is Liz Stringer and you're listening to The Mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. It's Easter Sunday, oh no, Easter Saturday, but for you irreligious lot, it probably is only serves as a yearly divider, or is that just me? Anyway, the news that George Pell got off with the crowing of innocence of child sexual abuse is a pretty bitter pill for those under his purvey, while a carbell of pederasts roamed the Catholic precincts in the Western District during the 70s and 80s, and that has been ascertained. You know, it's not just me spouting off, it's actually clearly been found to be true. There are people in prison because of it. A person I know from down that way said, well, after the announcement, well... He is dead to me. And he was, of course, referring to George. Anyway, we reported that the onshore gas moratorium Victoria has been lifted under the cover of COVID-19. So I checked with a Western District local on a completely different subject from George Pell. We were talking about gas and the onshore drilling. Uh, Gillian Blair, she's a former Greens candidate uh, and uh, I wanted to know some local reactions and a little insight into how the community is dealing with the coronavirus shutdown. And people are only just starting to realise that you can become suddenly unemployed or maybe even homeless just in an instant uh, because of conditions changing. We're living in such uh, an artificial sort of society which is all dependent on artificial type jobs and um, on a... Uh, a world monetary system, really, which is dependent on taking advantage of people in poor countries. It's like we're a parasite on the other countries, but people don't realize this. So a lot of our food is subsidized by the uh, poor wages of people overseas and all that sort of thing. It's pretty outrageous. And um, one of the things I wanted to speak to you about in particular, because you live down in the Western District, and uh, before we get on to more specifically COVID-19 sort of elements, uh, while COVID-19 hit uh, Australia and the rest of the world, uh, there are other things that are going on at, at the same time. And one of them was... Absolutely. One of them was that the Victorian government decided that it would get rid of the moratorium for onshore gas. Yes. Can you tell us Yes, absolutely. How is it affecting people down there and, and what was the process that the government said? It said it consulted with people. Well, it consulted with about, I think it was 400 people or something like that. A very, very small number. It, it's actually such a small number um, that it's actually not a good way of running uh, any sort of questionnaire and getting uh, any sort of statistics from it. It's totally... <laughs> it doesn't stand up. Sorry about that, but... <laughs> um, yeah, what can I say? It leaves me almost stuck for words because uh, it's more or less the government using misleading data to try and fool the population that they've done a reputable research on this. 
In fact, there was a very good article in Renew Economy. Uh, Renew Economy uh, does really good articles, and there was a bloke called Michael Manzagarb. Manzagarb? Um, from memory, I think it was the 18th of March this year, and, and he wrote uh, that the government's been criticised for using this misleading jobs data. And in fact, they were talking in a similar way to the people uh, for the Adani mine spoke about thousands of jobs. Well, there won't be thousands of jobs from this uh, onshore gas exploration, but it's actually putting at risk the farming lands and the water supplies that are very rare in Australia, down here in the Western District, for instance, we've got good soils and we've got good water. They're proposing to ban dr drill through aquifers. Now, if you know anything about concrete, it decays. If you know anything about steel, it decays. So you think about putting a pipe through the aquifer. You've got several ways that it can become damaged and it can become polluted. It can become polluted with uh, drilling oils, which are quite toxic. They do have toxins in them. Um, and you can have decay of the pipes after a while, and then the uh, whole thing can go down and drain into another aquifer, which might be full of uh, salt, for instance, or uh, be otherwise not drinkable. So that water might become not usable. Um, there's various ways which I don't want to go into here, but it is putting our water at risk. But also, um, a friend of mine who's a farmer, uh, the gas people came onto his land a few years ago, and they were only putting a pipe through. And they absolutely wrecked the soil in many of his paddocks because they ploughed it all up with their equipment going backwards and forwards, and the good topsoil disappeared and was ruined. So he was really pissed off because there wasn't any comeback about that. And what can you do? How can you repair the soil? So, you know, he wasn't expecting that. And it's, it's really, really, it's a, a very sus report that the government has put out. Um, and it's um, talking about that we may have uh, thousands of jobs. Well, apparently you might get 240-odd jobs in a best-case scenario, and it could be as little as about 70 or 80 under a medium-case scenario. And when you look at how much gas is there, you suddenly realize this isn't a matter of getting gas out to supply people because if you actually... Re um, take the gas out at normal rates, it would only last for four years. What I'm saying is that I think the Labour government has been involved, it's been the victim actually, I think, of wedge politics, of uh, wedge politics by the federal government and the coalition, I call them the coalition, not the coalition, um, because they've been saying, oh, well, at the next election, we're going to open up all the gas and all your, all your prices will come down. Well, no, the prices won't go down. There's no guarantee that the gas would not be exported. Uh, we are actually paying inflated figures for our gas and our electricity. We're paying international prices for our gas. They export it and then they import it again for us to use. We're paying more for our gas than people in Japan are. They're using Australian gas and they're getting it cheaper than Australians are. So what did the farmers down that way think of this? Have you, I mean, you, you were... Your, your 
husband was a dairy farmer. So you must have, and and the place, that area is notoriously conservative politically. What are they saying? Uh, quite a lot of them are worried. Um, in fact, uh, we did surveys of many of the small towns and areas in the Western District, thousands of people were asked the question, uh, do you want uh, gas exploration on land? And about 98% of them in many of the surveys said no. It was generally about 98%. Um, so they're aware of the issues, whereas people in towns are not really aware of the issues. So you've got millions of dollars of food which are being produced in the Western District and other farming areas of Australia. And in some areas of Australia, uh, gas is not just being uh, produced by methods which are nominally or very minimally damaging. They're produced by fracking. And fracking is definitely damaging uh, to the water supply and to the soil and to people's health. So you've got people around Australia who have been suffering from all sorts of problems, health problems, as well as environmental and farming problems because of the gas industry. And um, and the same thing, uh, of course, with, with coal and oil. There have been major problems with both of those. And the government is seriously uh, promoting that we extract more of this stuff at a stage when the scientists in the world are saying we mustn't have any more gas, coal and oil. And when peace activists are saying we shouldn't really be digging up any more uranium because most of the countries, all but about two, I think, that have uh, used uranium for so-called peaceful purposes, uh, they just used it for making nuclear weapons. And we're in danger of having something else happen which we are totally not prepared for, which is nuclear war. With people like Trump uh, on the international scene, and there are more and more people like him, we really do need to sign the Declaration Against Nuclear Weapons. And Australia was one of the few countries that didn't attend the international meetings, which have been supported by many, many countries around the world. Nearly all the countries that went there, and I think it was probably a majority, uh, actually signed that they wanted to get rid of these damn things. And Australia and the USA didn't go to these meetings. The thing is, what we need is leaders with vision who really care about the future of the world and not the future of the next election. Can I ask you to, on another subject, which is really the same subject, what's it like in Warrnambool, because that's where you're based, uh, this COVID-19, what's been the local reaction and how are people behaving during the day? It's very quiet. There's nobody on the streets. Uh, about seven in the morning, you might see a few walkers striding past with their dogs. Uh, you don't see any children on the streets now. You did uh, maybe a week or two ago. Um, we're now getting our groceries delivered and we keep a respectful distance from the person who delivers them um, and we're living out of our backyard of course I don't know how many other people are doing that um, so I think people are trying to adhere to the regulations and trying to prevent the spread of the virus and I think that's really good uh, Do you know if the hospital is uh, faring okay or are there any cases down there? Well, here's an interesting thing. Um, I was supposed to go into hospital for an operation, um, and I, was, I had to have the pre-operation 
um, set up where you go and see the doctor and they check out your heart and all the rest of it. So I went in to Hamilton because that was where they wanted me to go and I thought, why on earth do they want me to go for this? It could be six months before I'm ready to go, but they insisted that I had to go. So all right, so I go along and when I got to the uh, front desk, there were people there saying, go no further until you've asked these que- answered these questions. And so I had to tell them about whether I had been overseas, whether I knew anybody who'd had a fever, all a whole heap of questions. That was fine. And the people that were asking me were uh, dressed in protective stuff. They had the gloves on, they had the masks over their faces, etc. But when I went in to see the doctor, he was just dressed normally. And I thought, now, is he making a sacrifice so that the people on the front there have access to what are very uh, under... I suppose scarce apply at the moment uh, face masks and gloves I really don't know I didn't dare to ask him maybe they thought that if they, once someone's been through the defences and that they'd be alright why did you have to go to Hamilton that's a long way have they, uh, have they moved uh, hospital services or uh, centralised them in Hamilton no no what the situation is uh, the medical fraternity is under a great deal of pressure um, and so uh, if I'd wanted to see anybody in Warrnambool, I would have had to wait about six months. Now, here's another thing, really. Um, the ABC did a really excellent background briefing program this week. I really recommend that people have a listen to it. And it really shows how a lot of the uh, facilities which are needed to battle this virus are not available in country regions. So uh, they did an interview with people at Horsham Hospital. And Horsham Hospital has a problem. Uh, They actually had uh, some doctors and nurses who were exposed to somebody who might have had the virus so they sent off some uh, tests uh, from this patient Um, it took them more than four days Uh, uh, I don't know how long it took but after four days they still hadn't received the results and yet somebody in in Melbourne who had the same test got their result the next day now uh, in the meantime the doctors and nurses who were exposed to this patient and they didn't know whether he had COVID or not, they had to continue working because the hospital was short of stuff. So the implications are that people in uh, places like Horsham are actually made to take risks, which in, in, in Melbourne, um, people would say, oh, that's no good, you can't do that. Well, it's more or less being forced on them because the, the government, um, I think the federal government should take a hand in, in and all this as well, um, is not able to get stuff out. Now, who's in charge of all this? I don't know, but it needs to be sorted out. Country people are just as valuable, in fact, uh, probably more in some ways because they're producing food. Um, we, need, we supply the towns, but we're not getting the supplies coming the other way for the medical uh, stuff that we need. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, hoping you are keeping well during the coronavirus day at home. Keep up the personal hygiene rituals and when outside for essential activities like work, exercise or getting supplies, keep a 1.5 metre distance from each other or, as Gillian said, a respectful distance. I thought that was nicely put. The United Nations Secretary-General sent out a letter uh, recently calling on the cessation of armed conflict 
which made me wonder about, because of the coronavirus, and it made me wonder about what war is. Can it just be put on hold for a virus? Is it that sort of thing? You know, the independent and uh, peaceful Australia Network, IPAN, sent out a support letter on Wednesday to the Australian government. And, of course, Australia has particular links to the war machine that's generally... uh, with, you know, it being uh, the ba- uh, barrel organ organ grinder's monkey, uh, the uh, organ grinder being America, of course. I followed up with Bevan Ramston from IPAN, uh, and he gave me a, a few uh, other uh, disquieting insights into uh, what's happening in America at the moment as well. So there you go. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, IPAN, um Put out um, a letter, or sent a letter to the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Maurice Payne, um, drawing attention to the United Nations Secretary General uh, call, Antonio Guterres, in which he referred to the global fight against the coronavirus and said, That is why today I am calling for an immediate global ceasefire in all corners of the world. Now, um, his call for warfare to cease at this time in order to concentrate efforts in every country on the fighting pandemic um, does deserve support from all governments and militaries. And that's why we've written to the uh, Senator Maurice Payne saying, um, in addition, for the world to be at peace for even a short time would be a precious achievement and one that should be eagerly grasped and hopefully with goodwill might continue beyond the pandemic. And um, IPAN uh, then urged the Australian government to seize this peace opportunity, support the UN Secretary-General's call, and ensure Australia halts any involvement in war activities or lending support to war activities, whether in Iraq or Afghanistan or through Pine Gap, including its support for the US drone assassination warfare. And so IPAN has called on the government to to support um, this call by the uh, the United Nations Secretary-General. We also added into the letter um, calling for the cessation of the movement of US personnel to and from Pine Gap during this crisis because Pine Gap has 400 um, US people, military and CIA, working there um, in Central Australia near Alice Springs and obviously has staff going to and fro as they end their contracts or going on holidays. So there would be um, arrivals coming into Australia from the United States and also a risk then of bringing the coronavirus in and the government should therefore, um, we think, um, block any personnel coming into Australia for that purpose. And um, the letter finished up by saying, can you please advise of the Australian government's response to this call for warfare cessation by the UN Secretary General and the contribution Australia can make to this important call. Well, it does expose how much involvement Australia does have in these ongoing wars. Do you believe that uh, there is a business as usual attitude going on in regards to these uh, these things? Well, I think the government would probably say that they're busy fighting the coronavirus. Um, but nevertheless, this is all about the coronavirus globally. It's not just about our corner of the earth in Australia. 
um, the ceasefire is to um, countries right through the world address the coronavirus issue. Uh, we have another letter too that's going out, and this is about another call by the United Nations Secretary General. It's about the sanctions, economic sanctions, which um, operate against, which the United States is operating with its allies um, against a number of countries. And he said this, sanctions imposed on countries should be waived to ensure access to food, essential supplies and access to COVID-19 tests and medical support. This is the time for solidarity, not exclusion. We're talking here about US sanctions against Iran, against Cuba, against Venezuela, and I think other countries as well. And it's not just US, but the US involves other countries, its allies in this, these sanctions. Now, he's obviously identified, the UN Secretary General, the fact that you know, they're being additionally penalised in their fight because of these sanctions against them. And indeed, they're acts of war anyway. I consider myself that economic sanctions against a country is an act of war and so fits into his call for, for a ceasefire of war actions. Has IPAN been watching the uh, developments around the uh, US uh, carrier Washington uh, where uh, that was another very revealing thing that uh, that the um, carrier carries about five thousand personnel, and it's had an outbreak of coronavirus, um, and the handling of that particular issue. It just it was gobsmacking to me how how big that population was. But then of course, they've stood down the uh, commander of that ship because he let it no be known in a memo, memo form to about 30 people or areas of the uh, American establishment that there was a problem and something needs to happen. Do, do you feel like that there is a, a sort of sense of, oh, we can sacrifice these people's lives, that the people that are in charge don't seem to have as uh, strong a commitment to the... Uh, general population as the general conversation that they have, you know, we're all in it together kind of stuff? Well, I think um, there is that attitude in the United States and Trump exemplifies that in the way he's half-hearted one minute and just to change his mind the next minute. Uh, I don't know whether you knew that about this figure and that um, last year 80,000 people in the United States died of ordinary flu. 80,000 died of ordinary flu last year. So they, no one's heard about that. They don't seem to worry about it. So, yes, I think that the establishment in the United States looks after itself. It doesn't care much for workers and, and uh, those who are really needy. It's a terrible thing. Uh, I, uh, my wife is a nurse and she's, she's a Filipino nurse and she has a friend in New York who's a nurse um, and she was talking to her yesterday on the phone and she works in a nursing home, and she said, oh, we, 26 bodies were taken out yesterday, and the crematorium is, is so full, they had, to, they had to burn them on a ship. I don't know what that was about. And she said her daughter is a nurse, was called back into service, and they haven't even got gowns for her to wear in the hospital in New York. That's just a, an aside, an aside, Anne, about the conversation my wife had yesterday. But yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree with you that um, 
I don't think I don't think the US um, elite who run the place um, care much for workers and those in need. I mean, their health service is so poor that they're, they're reaping that rewards of that right now. But do you see all these American um, ships and armaments around the world? Because, you know, what I was thinking about is sending out a letter asking, saying that there should be a, a ceasefire of war. Now, you think, oh, people are having wars in local areas, and how could one letter from the UN have that sort of effect? But what we're really talking about is an industry in war and uh, that there are major political powers like the Americans and their allies who are are involved in those wars. And so a letter like that might have an effect. Uh, this, This is what I find very revealing. Can you talk about the amount of American assets and wars that are going on and would be influenced by a ceasefire like this? Yes, well, because the, the military-industrial complex, whether it's in America or the developing one in Australia, likes war. The value of their shares always go down if there's any talk about peace. I'm glad you raised this one, Anne, because we, this is another IPAN issue, is military spending. And in our editorial, in our uh, publication voice for last month, uh, we said um, this... We are facing a very real threat to our national security, the COVID-19 threat to our health. And that follows on the heels of the other threat to national security posed by climate change and demonstrated by the devastating bushfires of last year and early this year. These are real as opposed to imagined threats. However, our government continues to allocate $250 billion to purchase military hardware F-35s and submarines, and to upgrade the Tyndall runway and facilities for U.S. bombers. All this is in response to the push from the United States military to prepare for war for a fictitious and manufactured military threat. If the last Defence White Paper said that they could see no military threat to Australia in the foreseeable future, this current health threat is unprecedented a once-in-100-year event, says the Prime Minister. But we desperately need face masks and testing kits and ventilators and greatly expanded hospital, hospital facilities and support for those workers put out of work by the crisis. IPAN urges the government to immediately reassess spending priorities and divert military spending into implementing the urgent measures necessary to combat this virus and safeguard the health of the Australian people. Now, that was a uh, statement in our last um, magazine, and um, it, it builds on what you were saying there, that military spending is so useless. It only feeds the pockets and the profits of the military-industrial complex. And Australia has no military threat and no enemies. Why are we spending that enormous amount of money which could so upgrade our hospital and health system that we'd be able to cope with the issues here very much more effectively? You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, hoping you're enjoying this remotely produced program. One thing that has happened for us at 3CR, the 3CR crew is now, uh, we are now adventurers in the land of techno-savvy. Well, I wouldn't go too crazy about it, but we are all determined that the show must go on. It looks like the shutdown at 3CR is going to to go longer than April the 15th, which, which is what they thought it would be. 
Um, so the notion of 90 days at least is correct. I have been getting information about stand downs at local councils in Geelong and in Sydney specifically and I was thinking about the pivotal role local councils play in running the bureaucracies and assets of communities. I caught up with Sue Bolton from the Socialist Alliance who is also a councillor on the Moreland Council. She gives some idea of what the Moreland Council is doing and what is her focus during the COVID-19 emergency. Hello, Sue speaking. G'day, Sue. It's Annie here. How are you? Hi, Annie. How's it going? Good. What's happening with Moreland Council? I know they had a special um, meeting. Uh, what did they put in place? Well, um, I think it is fairly limited, but there is a recognition that there's a total social economic crisis on hands with the virus. So what they put in place was a hardship scheme for people who are struggling to pay their rates not a freeze on rates. It is a, uh, a situation where people who can't afford to pay their rates won't uh, accrue interest. So there won't be any interest accrued on unpaid rates until 1st of July next year. I mean, that's good as far as it goes, but I imagine there'll be people who've lost their jobs who won't be able to afford to pay their rates or even people, not so much the big investors, but I can imagine, say, workers who've bought an investment property to rent uh, will then, and who've lost their jobs, will probably put the squeeze on tenants because, you know, the federal government and state government haven't done anything to and evictions, not really. I mean, they've sort of talked about it, but it's not really happened. It's not really a def- any definite kind of thing. So that's an issue. Um, one of the things I had to fight for, which is stunning that you would have to fight for, is for the council to install hand soap in public toilets. They were really resistant to that. Then they agreed agreed to put it in um, public toilets in busy places like in um, Coburg Mall. Stunning, it wasn't even there. Um, but uh, they finally conceded and agreed to putting it in all public toilets. They, um, But some of my other motions um, didn't get passed. Uh, so one of my motions was to open up public toilet facilities 24 hours a day um, for homeless people, people who, you know, late night passengers coming home from work or whatever. And that did get seconded by the Greens, but it lost. Um, And there has been real resistance on council to doing that. And especially people who are sleeping rough, um, people who've, you know, homeless, and, you know, even just late night commuters coming home from work, um, uh, you know, caught stranded, you know, and yeah, there's no public toilet facilities. So it's really, I believe that is totally appalling. Um, now, some things where I couldn't get a seconder, couldn't get any support at all, um, was for expanding the council's Meals on Wheels program to... Um, to, you know, look after homeless people, meals for homeless people, hot meals, so that people aren't 
you know, because people who are homeless who, or especially people who are forced to beg, um, but also not just people who are forced to beg, um, but, you know, just general homeless people, people who are really suffering in this period um, need access to meals and food and that didn't get a seconder. Um, I also asked for a council to investigate setting up food banks in each of each of the main areas, especially Glenroy, Coburg and Faulkner. Um, Faulkner, Glenroy, Hadfield are the most, um, the poorest areas with the worst issues of food security and um, that didn't get a seconder. And, you know, part of my reason for pushing on the Meals on Wheels and the food bank idea is because there are so many people living in Australia who have no access to our welfare system. They don't have access to our public health system, free public health system. They can use it if they pay. Um, and that includes um, workers on short-term working visas of, of various kinds, um, like migrant workers on temporary visa schemes. It includes international students. Who, um, it includes tourists who might be working or tourists who are just stranded in Australia. Um, it includes New Zealanders um, who don't... Now, I know the government has relaxed some of the provisions around New Zealanders. I'm not sure if that caters for all New Zealanders, but a lot of New Zealanders who arrived after Howard changed, changed the various schemes in the early 2000s um, have been denied access to HECS, access to Medicare access to uh, our welfare system um, and a lot of them can't get citizenship because either or, or even permanent residency because they might be in jobs that the government deems low skills but they don't accrue enough points to become permanent residents plus exorbitant costs. So there's a lot of people living in Australia right now who are denied access to all of the various safety nets and council is one body which could try and help um, deal with with that lack of equity by you know providing some services without people having to show a healthcare card um, but I couldn't get a seconder for that. Um, I also wanted to try and get um, council's um, aquatic centres opened up so that homeless people have a chance to go and have a shower somewhere, um, didn't win support for that either. So couldn't get support for that from anybody. So um, there is a lot more that council could do. And I know there are a lot of informal networks. Now, some of those networks, Facebook groups, which have been set up by local people in the community, um, mutual aid kinds of groups, like there's a Northside Coronavirus Outreach Group, been set up. It sort of appears to me that a lot of those are more in the inner city areas. I'm not sure about the outer city areas where people are really, really desperate, where poverty is much worse. But certainly I've been receiving calls from people within the migrant community, um, you know, particularly the Bangladeshi community in Faulkner. And most of the calls they've been getting are from international students who are have been left high and dry. And, you know, that community is organising to do free grocery drop-offs for people. But they aren't in a position to sort out the housing issue. 
and so those people um uh so some of those international students who've lost their jobs and lost their tenancies because they can't afford rent they've been forced to move in with friends so they've got four five six people sharing a bedroom and you know so of course you can't social distancing in those um situations so you know that the housing issue is something which hasn't really been addressed by federal or state government. Um, state government's addressed it a little bit in the sense that they've allocated six million dollars to homeless services, but it appears to me that it is purely for homeless people who are forced to self-isolate rather than providing more housing. And in my opinion, the main the only really essential construction work in this period should be really um, health facilities but also building public housing for homeless people um, because the situation will be much worse than normal because people in the past who are able to couch surf can't always couch surf because people are, are scared about catching the virus and so this is um, yeah that that is the housing situation is worse now than it normally is um, pre-virus. It's been noted by the Australian Services Union that the Geelong Council has laid off a whole lot of uh, workers and also in New South Wales, Sydney Council has laid off a whole lot of people. Is Moreland Council going down that road? For once, it's not. Now, in my opinion, Moreland hasn't had a good industrial relations record in terms of necessarily looking after workers I'm within a whisker of outsourcing its waste services but uh, like uh, well actually over the years uh, the council has been pushing to outsource it and luckily some last minute work by the Australian Services Union managed to convince the various councillors not to outsource and I think the fact that that ended up being an across-the-board kind of decision that went across, you know, political party lines in the end because of, but really only because of really good work by the ASU. That gave a certain signal to the uh, upper echelons of council that council wanted to protect workers. And so that was very good leading into this virus situation because... A whole lot of services have been closed down, but um, council hasn't stood down or sacked any staff. But council is redeploying staff for other positions within council. So there are staff being retrained to take some of the hundreds of calls it's getting every day around the COVID-19 situation, like really desperate calls from desperate people. They have also guaranteed that if they're forced into a position of standing people down, that they will guarantee people's wages until the end of September. In which, and at that time, uh, that decision will be reviewed with a view to extending full payment until the end of December. So that is a much better position than I'd expected Mullen to take. Um, Now, unfortunately, that hasn't saved the YMCA many, many years ago before I was on council. The council outsourced the management of its leisure centres 
and YMCA has a contract for that. And those workers have, I believe, all or mostly lost their jobs. I mean, I think this indicates that a lot of workers are excluded from this JobKeeper payment. And then with the JobSeeker the payment, the new name for New Start, a lot of workers who've never been on Centrelink benefits before are suddenly discovering how restrictive our welfare system is. A lot of workers would have assumed that you know, if you become unemployed, you can just straight away take out Centrelink benefits because the government creates the impression that everyone who gets Centrelink is a bludger, blah, 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 all of that mythology. And some workers over the years who haven't had to claim Centrelink before have believed that mythology, that fake news from the government. And now a lot of those workers are being left stranded because they're forced to wait for entitlements, having to use up holiday leave and sick leave, etc., before they're eligible. And they're also discovering that if they've lost their job but their partner's still working, they're not eligible for job seeker. But they would have incurred debt, um, might be mortgages. They may have a bank loan for other reasons, um, either paying off a car or childcare fees or whatever medical expenses, etc., and they're not able to meet their financial obligations on just one wage. And so I think a lot of people are suddenly discovering our welfare system that we've all paid taxes for. We all pay the GST, tourists, international students, migrant workers who aren't eligible for our welfare system all pay taxes. We all pay the GST and other indirect taxes and um, anyone who's worked full-time or part-time, whether you're, um, regardless of your visa status, pays income taxes for a welfare system and public health system that you're not entitled to. So we've got massive inequities, and this is where I think councils can do more. I think one other thing that people have to be very aware of is that governments are using this period of the COVID-19 virus to restrict our rights and civil liberties. And that includes not wanting to have the federal parliament meet, not wanting to have the state government meet, which means there's a lack of uh, ability for people to challenge decisions by these governments. And there are also even discussions amongst councils about delaying the council elections which are due at the end of the year for another 12 months which I think you know is really undemocratic people deserve to have council elections maybe if the virus is still wild uh, by September maybe there might be a justification of having a few months delay but certainly not 12 months there also moves the foot by some councils that they not hold meetings unless the state government reconvenes to change the Local Government Act to allow local councils to meet online. At the moment, the Local Government Act in Victoria requires councils to meet in person. Now, I think the state government urgently needs to fix that issue because there are already discussions in councils about not meeting, which means 
all of the decisions are left in the hands of the unelected bureaucrats. And also with the issue of rates, currently the state government funds councils to give a concession to aged pensioners. It's not very much of a concession. It should really be much more. But that concession also needs to be expanded to people who are unemployed, who've lost their jobs, both people who've lost their jobs before this virus crisis, but also people who've lost their jobs since the virus crisis and also disability pensioners. And that's, you know, really important because no one can foresee the future. You could, you know, have a, you know, great job, even high income, but tomorrow you can have a car accident and never work again or you can be retrenched and not be able to find work, which is, you know, sort of indicated by, you know, the the difficulty of finding work um, is indicated by the fact that when Coles announced it was going to 5,000 workers, 36,000 workers applied for those jobs. And that wouldn't just be um, workers who'd lost their jobs as a result of the COVID-19 virus. It would have also been the fact that in Australia prior to this crisis with the virus, we had something like six, seven, eight, nine, ten unemployed people for every job vacancy. And so um, you probably would have got similar numbers even before this virus crisis applying for those jobs. People need a hand. Otherwise, some of those unemployed people might end up not being able to pay their mortgage, not being able to pay their rates, having their houses sold from under them, still owing a debt to the banks for the houses they were buying from the banks and having to also fork out for rent as well. There is a crisis, uh, but it's not working people's fault, working class people's faults. They're forced into this system and the governments need to help them. And the banks should be basically putting a freeze on people's mortgages, the freeze on people's all people's loans, whether they're personal loans or mortgages, and certainly not accruing interest on those loans. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when for the first time in weeks an item relegated the avalanche of worldwide virus news from being effectively the only news item as the wise their honours on the High Court. Women and men with the common touch all have declared that Georgie Porgie Puddin' and Pie did not kiss the boys and make them cry, leading us to the most sensible conclusion arising from this decision, obviously the belief that the fairest form of criminal justice is trial by 12 of your peers is false, flawed, gets it wrong. In this case, falsely believes an accuser against the word of a prince of the church. So the simple solution is have all criminal trials involving a jury referred straight to the High Court and bypass the jury system, which can get it so wrong by hearing the evidence, the defence and prosecution cases, and then stuffing it up by returning a guilty verdict. And in this case, the accuser must, must, now be charged with perjury because by inference the wise their honours have ruled he lied. So convincingly he fooled Georgia Pauling's 12 peers. Prominent members of the church have sensibly called for a fly into the Victorian justice system, prosecution and 
sorry, uh, police processes that led to this miscarriage of justice, who also acted on nothing more substantial than an accusation and the case they presented. They must face the full force of the law they so abused. However, for the full unbiased story of this injustice, I refer you to Bolt Through the Head, Andrew, Care, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, Balanced Objective Reporting. Amid injustice in a pandemic, there are some heartwarming stories that reinforce our faith in humanity, like just when poor Sunday morning street pugilist Jamie Packer-Punch loses his little income from the private mint that is a casino, in his case casinos, along comes big supremo scuttle them more latch son with his true dear baby Jesus spirit and books out the crook casino to isolate all these people requiring quarantine. What a kind gesture. That upstanding Christian Scuttlebem and his successor as the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, must have learned the lesson from crowding no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people requiring medical attention, and let's be fair, who claim they require medical attention, about which Constable Duffer is quite properly highly sceptical, and Constable Duffer is a most reasonable and generous man, crowding them into a suburban motel, was downright uncharitable, hence the charitable contribution to Jamie Packer-Punch's fortunes. It's also a relief to see some common sense entering the discussions around COVID-19 and public policy. It's like the common sense a number of rational titans of industry and the fossil rump of the political parties bring to the climate change, if there is such a thing, debate the common sense argument that we can do something about destroying the planet as long as the economy can afford such long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden worker and iron luxuries. Well, real common sense from John Moody, big supremo of a finance company that has seen its business drop 50% thanks to the COVID lockdown rules. Many of those dying were already neatly informed us and yes good point and spot on John being sick usually precedes dying and with all the sensitivity sympathy and empathy we would expect from a financier John pontificated I wonder how many of the deaths that will be attributed to COVID-19 would have occurred within the next year or two anyway it's time for our political leaders to take a reality pill before it's too late Direct quote, no embellishment, by the way. Yes, particularly the oldies. They'll die, or we'll all die anyway, and lots of the youngies will wrap a car around a pole or tree and wipe out a few of their mates. John's point being the government should relax the rules, allow people out to enjoy the pleasure of borrowing from his company at, I'm sure, the most reasonable interest rates he charges, almost giving money away, like the government. And John is backed up by no less a titan of than Screws the Workers' Mole, former AMP Big Supremo and which bank which um, used to be our bank director, two illustrious corporate giants which filled so many volumes of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission into the finance industry. So Lily White is their reputation. And Screws the Workers also said it is time to loosen the lockdown for the sake of the economy. See, like climate change, if there is such a, the economic crisis must outweigh the health costs of the pandemic. A few million deaths and lots of illness is surely preferable to an ill economy when everyone will suffer. 
And there are people who still say the practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all think only of themselves. John and Screws the Workers have put the light of that as an increasing number of caring business exponents echo their thoughts. Their converse, lazy, avaricious workers. Casuals who had worked for one caring employer for a year and temporary visa holders including no proper papers queue jumping illegal boat people will not be eligible for the $1,500 handout to caring employers, the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations crushed them portaloo affirmed. After all, this $132 billion corporate welfare is to support caring employers, not lazy avaricious workers. He explained. Uh, but caring employers and the government tell us these people are businesses contracted by the gig economy and related caring employers. Indeed, that's true. These people are businesses in their own right. And don't forget, they receive a loading to cover them for situations just like the current crisis. Uh, so if they are businesses in their own right, they are therefore caring employers who would qualify for your handout to pay their worker who just happens to be themselves. No, no, they are businesses in their right when they work for, or more correctly, contract to the gig economy. But in no way could they be considered caring employers in terms of a handout to caring employers, because they are only caring employers when they are caringly employed. Look, these people are just trying to take advantage of the government's goodness. And the aforementioned exemplar of Christian charity Constable Duffer said temporary visa holders could go back to where they came from. Uh, for many of them, Constable, back to the persecution they have fled for the warmth of our dear baby Jesus charity. Uh, well, of course, uh, that's our like, you know, like policy, like, you know, anyway, like. Freudian worth mentioning there, by the way, when I checked, I typed Constable Suffer. Some critics from the long-haired commie left have been a touch critical of the Socialist Party for supporting the handout without ensuring casuals and temporary visa workers were covered, claiming it was a sellout. The Socialist Party sellout, as if, or as Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony all being oozy clarified, the words sellout are, are highly insulting. We call it flexibility. But a positive... Her Most Gracious Majesty inspired us all at the weekend by setting a world record and entering the Guinness Book of Records for managing the highest number of clichés in a single speech, eclipsing former champion and former Socialist Party Minister Martin Clichés' long-time record. A clearly disappointed Marty, now a champion of fossil pollution, was gracious about losing the title to Her Most Gracious. At the end of the day, when the sun sets through the window of opportunity, he conceded, it's no disgrace to lose to such a long-term exponent of the uh, cliché. Uh, and don't forget, Her Most Gracious Majesty is a major shareholder in the fossils pollution industry. Her Most Gracious sympathised with her subjects who are, who are unable to leave their homes. After herself fleeing London and Buckingham Palace at the first hint of danger and holding up in Windsor Castle, swapping a palace for a castle. It's a tough life being the number one doll budger. In a touching gesture, she concluded her world record performance with a delightful rendition of We'll Meet Again, Vera Lynn Bleed. 
A law firm sympathetic to the innate sensitivities of caring employers is running this radio ad telling caring employers it understands the stress they suffer when having to sack or, sorry, sadly have to let go workers. And I think we all feel so sorry for caring employers when we hear they have to sadly let workers go, the stress this law firm knows they suffer. The stress, as the ad points out, that they may be sued for unfair dismissal. Thankfully, this sympathetic understanding law firm can advise them on how to suddenly let go workers without the stress. An invaluable service, for which they deserve every cent of the exorbitant fees they then charge. No, no, let's be fair. The ad promises first consultation free, then they deserve every cent of the exorbitant fees they then charge, roughly by the second. But then it's worth it to avoid all that stress. What it does show is the evil evil of evil workers egged on by evil unions prepared to put their caring employer through all that stress and expense just because they have to be sadly let go. All take and no give. Obviously, this legal firm knows there are ways of unfairly dismissing a worker without it being unfair. At this time of year, it is fair to say we're attempting to prevent the way lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions continually crucify poor, innocent, caring employers, it opined. And with that, the spokesperson headed for a wash basin and performed a thorough washing of the hands. So finally, must be this wash-your-hands directive, because... Look, look, those seven judges are also washing their hands. Good morning. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're coming to the end of the show this week. I had the chance to talk to one of our regulars, Dr Noah Pasil from Macquarie University, about his thoughts on what is happening to us, Australia and the world during COVID. Auntie Roy, she, she's just yeah. a piece uh, saying that this is like a portal, that it could uh, take you to a new world which uh, where we can begin being positive or we could carry all the detriers from the past with us. Yeah. What are you Yeah, doing? okay. Yeah, I can see. Um, I mean, she's a very smart and very interesting um, woman. Interestingly, it's been published in the Financial Times. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> given her history of... Uh, of um, critis, crit, being critical of neoliberalism. It's an interesting place for it to be published. Um, oh, God, what, what do I think? Um, is it a portal? Well, it's a, I mean, Zoom, the amount of people who are now Zooming as a mode of communication um, means that people are in some form of portal. Um, well, and before than... you move on to that, you know Zoom, of course... Is, has been called malware because it doesn't have proper uh, security, uh, back-end security or any of those kind of things that are required. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, well, look, uh, does that surprise me? Probably not, given that you know the internet is this thing that just envelops everything of, at the moment. Um, yeah, what do I think? You know, I, I think there are a couple of things that are really obvious to me. One is that, just like everything else, your socioeconomic situation and your general relationship to capitalism impacts greatly on how you're experiencing this pandemic. That is, if you have means to, you know, if you're financially independent or have stability, you're probably going to ride this out a lot differently to people who are in the precarious employment of, uh, you know, shift workers and 
outsourcers and you know all those people that rely on consultancy work and everything else that we've been told for 30 or 40 years gives people flexibility. Well, here, that flexibility often, well, here's an example of where flexibility means pretty dire for you, you know. So, yeah, that's the first thing. I think the states that have neoliberalised the hardest have probably felt the impact of this the most. That's the second thing I would say. Um, so Australia is a country that's gone down that path, but, you know, as much as governments have tried to pull us all the way to the US-style neoliberal project and the you know, that of um, the UK, we've held some of our, we held back on some of it. And the third thing is that the state has become even more crucial than ever before. And here we are in the midst of a pandemic and uh, the state is the only thing that's uh, really holding the whole thing together. And yet, and you know, that is entirely in contradiction with the core understanding of what neoliberalism does. So, What's really interesting is the people who, some of the people who have been the most strongest advocates of further neoliberalism are the people who have been at the forefront of very unneoliberal policies. Yes, that's exactly yeah. right. Uh, it's been said to me that uh, neoliberalism has no answers to this, but interestingly enough, they, uh, this government has, the federal government, has been trying to shape the uh, the policies into a kind of business oriented um, playground, really, rather than a social uh, net, uh, networking event. Yeah, I agree. I think the you know the but behind the facade of taking care of people, and there's been some elements of that. I think and. There's been a great deal, I mean, you would have thought the government would have done straight away is protected people's access to their homes and their, um, you know, to shelter and to some security in times like this and gone with some sort of rent protection and and, um, mortgage relief. But in fact, those were the things that they really lagged on to some extent. I think that had to do a lot with the fact that the, you know, in their DNA, if you want to call it that, or in their sort of the forefront of their psyche, is this respect for private poverty and for wealth accumulation. Um, and it's very hard for them to see uh, how they can um, sort of enact policies that contradict so directly with those that core fundamental belief. Um, I mean, you know, there are elements of this that must be, you know, sort of, how can I put it, uh, their, their most cherished dreams, you know, locking the borders. You know, what, what more could a reactionary government want than a excuse to close the borders to everyone? Um, and here they have it, you know, okay, it may not be the circumstances they want, but, you know, uh, Peter Dutton, you know, he sits on, the, on a popular, and I have to say, you know, in the current circumstances, having the borders closed to ensure that we can uh, all countries uh, can um, overcome the worst aspects of this disease, the spread of this disease makes perfect sense. But, you know, you can imagine the way that some of these people are relishing the fact that uh, the borders are closed and the uh, sort of movement of undesirables is completely uh, com- com- completely um, policed. 
Ah, but Noah, um, what happens when the undesirables turn out to be the in-laws of one of your staffers? Yes, I mean, it is, yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, the, it depends on the colour of their skin more than their actions, really, to determine whether someone's undesirable or not. Um, in their worldview, um, we remember very well, I remember very well, the discussions around uh, giving special visas to white South African farmers two, two or three years ago when claims of uh, intimidation and uh, harassment were, were not claims, but when there were fears around the safety of those sort of of those people against intimidation, harassment, and possible violence, um, and you know the sudden compassion of uh, of the government. There were still thousands of people who did suffer uh, harassment, violence, and uh, often torture and death by their the, the potential of it by their home governments. Were locked up on Manus Island and elsewhere. So you know the the, the reality is an undesirable is not. Uh, and undesirable because of their actions, but rather because of their identity. And, uh, you know, again, we have a situation, I think, where Chinese, the Chinese, um, you know, there's this rhetoric about this being a Chinese illness, you know, a Chinese pandem- pandemic. And it's interesting. The two things that have really prevailed in the right wing think tank uh, publications since the outbreak of the pandemic have been the sort of China phobic uh, responses of uh, people like Tom Switzer and the Centre for Independent Studies and at the same time uh, the uh, Institute of um, Public Affairs and other right-wing institutions or think tanks are using this particular moment to continue their push for relaxing taxes and reducing the uh, what they call the red tape or the regulative framework as a way of getting the getting the economy back on track once this is over so you can see here the two pillars of these um, institutions remain xenophobia and um, and further neoliberalism and so you know the words of uh, you know <laughs> words of uh, neoliberals themselves never let a good crisis go to waste and here they are uh, using this crisis to try and further their agendas which I find very worrying I mean the reality is the one thing that I've commented on a couple times the last week or so is how little there has been popular um, discourse around the failures of neoliberalism and the cost of neoliberalism uh, uh, you know that have been really highlighted by this pandemic that is around healthcare, around the incapacity of the state to provide, about the reliance of uh, the economy on private interests and the inability of the state to provide for people at the time of major um, economic or health and economic uh, crisis. The other really interesting thing, I think, and not to try and you know, sort of bang on too much about this is how common the response of leaders to the crisis has have used analogies of war. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even the Queen did it last night uh, in her address, and I haven't read it very closely, so I don't want to be too critical 
of the Queen. I don't think she's using it politically in the way that, say, Boris Johnson or Donald Trump has. But, um, you know, this idea that, um, you know, rather than see this as a, a moment of compassion, of, you know, solidarity globally, we use the analogies of war, which are all about conflict and division. Um, and you know, beneath And business, yeah, absolutely. No, good point. Um, so... Um, and, you know, you know, as we saw with the Great Depression and the recession of 1987, the winners and losers of major economic downturns are the winners and losers of the economy more generally. That is, the very rich will probably do quite well out of, uh, um, um, out of a crisis like this. And the very poor will do very badly out of it. Well, not the very poor, because they're already very bad, but that's sort yeah, of 40%. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll, yeah, tell you, I'll tell you, going back to the business about think tanks and propaganda arms of the right wing and the neoliberals, yeah. uh, the English think tank... Oh, the Henry Jackson, the Henry Jackson uh, Yeah, Henry Jackson, yeah. who have just cut, who were basically built from a, 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 a cabal from uh, Cam Cambridge. Yeah. They um, have just inserted a meme into a Guardian article around the notion that the Chinese should be charged uh, internationally for the secrecy at the beginning of the Wuhan uh, outbreak and that they should be uh, um, charged something like $600 billion or $60 billion or something through the international yeah. court. Now, yeah. uh, interestingly enough, in that same article, the Chinese are saying that they think that there's some uh, legs to the Americans having started the uh, the virus. I don't know where that comes in. But the, my point is that the Henry Jackson people are there to seed information and yeah. they've been doing it for quite a while now about yeah, anti-Chinese yeah. oh. rhetoric. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, you know, this is uh, these think tanks are developed to, and 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 their modus operandi is to wait for moments of crisis and to, uh, you know, sort of use those opportunistically to uh, to sort of um, uh, so to, to of further the aims so, yeah. of their masters. Yeah, and interestingly yeah. Yeah, sure. enough, that particular group. Is, is is registered as a charity, but the organisation that um, it's assumed had started off as an incorporated body. So they've obviously moved on like the IPA here. They're a char charity. We pay for them. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It is. I mean, I do find the status and their hypocrisy around this idea that all survive in the weak uh, perish and that the state shouldn't support or give any uh, assistance to to any organisation, you know, the sort of free market ethos, uh, really hypocritical and problematic. But, you know, yeah, I'm not surprised that the Henry Jackson Society has made the China the focus uh, of its... Now, because I had read previously that they were also at the forefront of uh, sort of Islamophobic... Yes. Um, yeah, sort of uh, um, ideas during the sort of war on terror era about going, a decade going ago. Going so far as to engineer 
um, false facts to go into one of the major newspapers and it was taken to court. Interestingly, yeah. defamation. Okay, so... Yeah, so they were okay. sprung. They were sprung. Yeah, okay. Well, that hasn't changed their approach in any way. Oh, no, they're very I see that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is the thing that we have to be wary of at this time, that the these interests, these particular... Um, uh, sort of what we call them ideological centres uh, or, or organisations that uh, work to produce a particular way of thinking are probably working very, very um, assiduously right now um, to produce a particular narrative on COVID-19 that furthers the interests of the people that fund them, mainly big business and right-wing reactionaries more generally. Isn't that upsetting, so, though? I think it's so upsetting considering that uh, people are in... Uh, it's very important for us to all work together. And what one of the things that I've been noticing is that through all this, even though some people foolishly believe that uh, the Prime Minister is doing a good job, foolishly, I think, um, they refuse to actually consult with workers. Yes, I know. and uh, But that, does, that won't surprise you at all. Um, but why don't they uh, relent? Why don't they relent when in the face of such a, a terribly difficult situation? I, I, I know I'm being naive, but will nothing change? I mean, the Americans uh, apparently said that 50% of people think that Trump is doing a good job. He's letting people die in the street. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it depends on where people get their information. And, <laughs> yeah, I know. And how they see the world, and you know, the lens that most people have—not most, but many people have—is one that's been shaped by very, very powerful propaganda machinery over the last thirty or forty years. You know, it's come from a whole range of different um, avenue, you know, sort of directions. Whether it be the popular press, whether it be the media, whether it be the entertainment press, whether it be you know, the sort of uh, corporate, um, you know, funded uh, think tanks, whether it me, whether it's, you know, it's, to some extent it's even been the more independent news outlets such as the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age in Melbourne who, at least, if not consciously producing a particular narrative about the world, are certainly doing it because they've been, because the dominant ideas have, that have taken shape are so dominant that, you know, few people will write outside of them. You know, the idea that China is a menace, I mean, you know, I mean, you can go to any major political science or international science studies uh, conference, and at least half of the papers will be re referring to the question of, you know, China's expansionism in one form or another. Most will be arguing that it's a problem. Some will be saying, well, it's a bit of a, um, you know, it's, it's it's a, a little bit of a, um, a constructed problem or one that's been produced uh, um, by the US and its allies. Um, but nonetheless, the fact that it dominates so much of the discourse just goes to show how central those ideas become to the way that we think about the world. So even if you're defending it, you're still encouraging that discourse. Oh, um, yes, most definitely. I know. mean, at the same time that this is going on, apparently in Venezuela, uh, the Americans have continued 
to uh, attack Venezuela. And in different places, the environment is still being actively assaulted. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the point you know about this being an American or a Chinese virus is really missing the point altogether. I mean, this is a virus. I mean, I read a great article in Le Monde, the French space newspaper that still does some investigative journalism, in-depth investigative journalism. And the point it made was that uh, COVID-19 is an ecological yeah. virus. It's one that comes out of the way that the world has been, you know, the, the sort of environmental damage and the ecological damage that that humans have, have been responsible for. And that it didn't matter whether it started in China or in, you know, the centre of Manhattan. The reality is that the sort of growth economy of the last couple of hundred years from the Industrial Revolution on has produced particular types of patterns that have led to this sort of phenomenon. And you know, it's not an isolated case. We've had MERS and SARS and you know, um, now COVID-19. It won't be long before there's a COVID-20 of some sort. But who knows where it could originate from? I've got brush, a million brush turkeys in, in the backyard here. Um, now, they live here because of urbanisation and, you know, the habitat's been destroyed and global warming has moved has meant that they've had to move to a different part of the country and that their their normal food source has been destroyed and and one can go on and on and on. If they pass on some viral disease to locals around here, this is not an Australian disease, it's a disease that's been created by um, you know, two, three hundred years of you know quite dramatic change to the climate the ecosystem, the ecology, a whole range of things. Um, so, you know, that's how we have to understand this. And the only way to deal with it is to actually address the cause of it, which is climate change, environmental destruction, sustainability or lack of sustainability um, and so forth. And a, crack, you know, a cranky kind of economic system, which needs to be tinkered with, surely. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, what I would like to see uh, right at the forefront of the discussion right now is what you've sort of mentioned, is that how do we think about our post-COVID economy and our political system and our relations to each other through the lens of compassion, sort of reconstructing society to think in terms of how we support each other and how we're able to protect each other from further outbreaks of this sort of kind, of this type, and how we deal with the economic ramifications in a way that actually means that most people, you know, sort of come out of it without the same impact that we had in the 1930s, the time of the Great Depression. That's what, you know, I'm hoping might come through in the way that uh, different intellectuals and organisations and newspapers and media and, and sort of, I don't know, leaders of society start to think through. Um, and maybe once we're in lockdown for three months, Annie, <laughs> people's responses will be a little bit different to the ones we have now. I mean, it feels for me it's been two weeks of, um, you know, some semi isolation I mean, I've worked from home, and to be honest, uh, I, I, I am only out for essentials. Uh, so, you know... I think about it, I'm probably at home 23 hours a day, um, some days all day. It's only been two weeks. It's only been two weeks. And, you know, whilst it's been a real challenge, it's not three months. No. Um, 
And I think you know, people's views on how what the implications of all this might uh, are and how we might deal with it might change as they've been locked down for a little bit longer. Um, you know, I get asked all sorts of questions from colleagues and students about, you know, when, you know, what are we going to do next semester? What are, you know, how is this going to impact on this? How's it, you know, I really don't have any answers because no one really can predict how long this is going to go on for. We hope the best case scenario is we're back on the streets doing most of the things we're used to doing in June or July. But who knows, you know, the rest of the year might be like this. We might be in and out of lockdown for the next two years. This might be a pattern that we have for the next 10 years. I mean, it's, it's impossible to say at this point in time. Well, what we have to try and think through is how we respond to this. Once we've had time to think through what the, the proper implications of it are. The other thing I would say that's really important at this particular time is that we remember, as we see all the stories of, you know, compassion, kindness, help, uh, and everything else that sort of charity that comes through in the next few weeks, that in fact, the neoliberal assumption about human nature as being conflictual, self-interested, individualized, is actually not what we're seeing in the way that people are responding to this crisis. If we can start to undermine that basic philosophical notion that humans are selfish, then we might be able to undermine the rest of the ideology that's built on that one core philosophical assumption. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. Hope you are all safe, not too stir-crazy, and thanking your lucky stars you didn't have enough money or the inclination to be on the Ruby Princess. Here is a track to celebrate. to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.